0: You're listening to Food for the Future on 980 CFPL and 980 CFPL.ca. Here's your host, Peggy O'Neill.
1: I'm Peggy O'Neill, home economist and host of Food for the Future. Today's show is part of the monthly series, Food for Thought. We unpack some of the big ideas about food to raise the conversation level and to stimulate lively discussion about the way forward together. We'll be discussing food sovereignty and cultural food insecurity from an Indigenous perspective. I'd like to acknowledge that this show airs in London, Ontario, on the traditional lands of the people of the Anishabe, Len Llanapawak, and Atiwanderun. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Joseph LeBlanc, Associate Dean of Equity and Inclusion at the Northern Ontario School of Medicine, an expert and advocate for the Indigenous food systems. Welcome, Joseph.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: It's our sincere pleasure. Joseph, can you give us a general overview of Indigenous food systems?
0: Sure. So, you know, I think that it's important to understand, you know, we often hear in Canada this conversation about Canada's agri-food system or Canada's food system. In reality, we have a mosaic of uh, Indigenous food systems. And what I mean by that is food systems that are emergent from place, that are localized, and that are uh, contextually specific and appropriate. And so, yeah, when we talk about Indigenous food systems, we're talking about food systems that are emergent from that particular place and are, you know, connected to the foods that are available locally.
1: So very, very much rooted in the land and place in which the food system is located. And I think that that's something for us all to think about. Different individuals are interested in local food, but it means something different from an indigenous perspective. And I'm wondering, um, because it is so localized and so contextualized, what are some of the implications to indigenous peoples of the? Consum- strains placed on traditional food systems.
0: Well, you know, the natural resource management has a huge impact and implication for expressing sovereignty within indigenous food systems. You know, a lot of that relates to a jurisdictional divide that comes from the constitution in, in which, you know, Indians and lands reserved for Indians fall in the federal jurisdiction, whereas the natural resources and, you know, agriculture, healthcare typically fall into the provincial jurisdiction. So this leaves a bit of a hodgepodge of, uh, um, approaches across the country. And in Ontario, you know, largely Indigenous food interests, economic interests are considered as a tertiary interest in forest management planning and natural resource management planning, which again, you know, impacts the ability to express uh, participation in the food system in a number of ways, either through population decline or, you know, population increases of of, uh, invasive species or, uh, you know, change to habitat such as contamination. And, you know, affecting the health of foods as well as the diversity and accessibility of of food items. So there are massive implications with the management structures that are in place, uh, as well as the prioritization of, you know, extractive industries and interests over, uh, you know, the interests of rights holders.
1: So sort of disconnected policy, you mentioned some things are regarded from a federal lens, other things are regarded provincially, some are in different ministries, that not only is it problematic in terms of where do you go, but also how do we make change with a consolidated progress and lots of different factors to consider there from a policy perspective, but also a lived experience. So I'd like to hear... Your thoughts on indigenous food sovereignty? What is that, and what? Why is it significant?
0: Food sovereignty is directly tied to personal, uh, household, you know, national sovereignty. Really, it's the ability to participate and influence any element of the food system that you choose. Or it's an important concept, but I think, generally in food system or food security conversation, because you know the agri-food system has done a really good job of relegating individuals and households to the role of consumer right and and you know when we look at the food system that involves uh everything from primary production processing distribution consumption waste right so the expression of sovereignty as a whole you know in 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 the context of food is about, you know, participating in any of those elements of the system. So, you know, in an Indigenous context, it's particularly important uh, as a decolonial tool. Dependency and the erosion of sovereignty in general are, you know, expressed intention of a lot of the assimilation and colonial acts in this country. So food is a mechanism for addressing and and rebuilding that uh, independence and and sovereignty. And, you know, ultimately a direct connection to the health and well being of households and individuals
1: right so at the household and individual level a person's right to define a good life and have the means to pursue it and because food is so central to that it is uh, a significant area of concern and i think we ought thank you for being on the show so that we can understand things and start conversations and work together towards the future that we want what is the relationship between indigenous food sovereignty and cultural food insecurity
0: Well, you know, I think that we can use the example of natural resource management as one, you know, framework to discuss that. But, um, you know, ultimately we look at, you know, what is a culturally significant or culturally important food? You know, these are typically local foods, right? You know, particular delicacies or interests that people have in in, uh, eating an entire animal or, you know, um, making the most of the sort of the gift that's been shared and, and, you know, demonstrating respect to to the life that was given. And, you know, ultimately, I think that's a a philosophical, spiritual clash with, you know, the philosophy that drives natural resource management, which is very much an extractive interest. Yeah, like I said, there is this very strong connection to, you know, the expression of sovereignty and, and the participation in culturally appropriate and significant activities. You know, this is where a lot of health and well-being comes from as well. You know, the physical activity of being on the land or water, the cultural and and intergenerational educational opportunities and spiritual continuity that comes from participating in land-based activities, you know, from uh, setting up for, you know, hunting or harvesting or burying into, you know, the uh, processing and then shared consumption of of those foods provides a lot of opportunity for intergenerational uh, education opportunities, the strengthening of culture and spirituality.
1: When I'm listening to you speak, I'm thinking it's so contextualized and so situated that there is this continuum of the land and the animal and the life, the, the gift of the life that was given. And I think in contrast to that, the food waste, often, possibly there isn't a thought of the life of whatever species that is. And then also situated in our ancestry and future. And I think that that's something that we can learn from the Indigenous members of the Canadian family and the global family. So thank you very much for sharing that. And it it makes me think of a comment you made earlier in our conversation about decolonization. What is decolonizing the table, Joseph?
0: Well, you know, I think it's important to understand that decolonization is not strictly an Indigenous undertaking. This is something that, you know, all Canadians need to understand and embrace. What is the legacy of colonization in this? country. You know, we deal with it in a number of ways. I think, you know, probably the one that resonates most with general Canadians is the idea of electoral reform. You know, we have a system that our former colonial parents have moved away from, right? And ultimately, you know, we're left with this legacy where we don't have a political representative system that's emergent from this place and representative of the needs of this place and this nation. So, you know, like I said, you decolonization is of particular importance to us as indigenous people and community but it's not strictly an indigenous undertaking and you know looking at how we decolonize the table is really about what's there and how it got there and the relationship you know ultimately the table is the central focus because that is where we relate with our family and neighbors and community and is that common factor that all of us are are connected to and so you know we like to use that imagery of, you know, sitting at the table and the focus on the home economy, because that vision of a, you know, food sovereign community is not that every household participates in every element of the food system, but is that there is an interconnected relationship between the households where, you know, sharing is occurring and, you know, collaborative undertakings and, uh, you know, a local economy and there is resilience in that, right? So, if you look at you know, the, the image of, say, the table or the household and think about what is a market-based participation in the food system that's cash in through employment or social assistance and cash out to the purchase of food. In Ontario, anyways, the social assistance regime will reclaim any additional monies that you are paid, you know, if you have a gift or if you do a little bit of work. And so this is what's known as like a poverty trap. And ultimately, you know, resiliency con- comes from diversity of inputs. And that includes not just income from the perspective of what is the cash, but what else is coming into the household, right? And so when we talk about income security as being critical towards accomplishing, you know, food security, we have to broaden that in the perspective to say, you know, what else is coming in? That can include primary production, such as gardening or participation in, you know, communal gardening effort. It can be, you know, hunting, Trapping it can be trading it can be you know the uh, a micro economy where you're selling something that you make you know to neighbors at a local market it can be participation in communal kitchens it can be participation in good food box programs there's all kinds of different ways that we can build resiliency in the home economy and relieve the the pressure of capitalist interests and and that's part of the the decolonization approach right is to say you know uh, what can we do uh, in a cooperative and collaborative manner that is not so focused on uh, the individual and, and on the you know, the capitalist interests. So, you know, ultimately, it's a big question, uh, you know, but we're hoping that, you know, through framing it at the household level, through focusing at, at, the, at the kitchen table approach, it, it really, you know, humanizes the experience and we, you know, come to that natural connectivity that we all have around food.
1: So, a, a deeply significant, significant symbolism in the the notion of decolonizing the table from a humanities perspective, from a social perspective, and from a natural resources perspective, but also from everyone can participate. And as you said, not in every single thing, every single time, but where we choose and where our gifts are. And so decolonizing the table as a symbolic representation of the change we need to make with hope for the future. Thank you very much for that, Joseph. After the break, we'll discuss the Northern Ontario Indigenous Food Sovereignty Collaborative, an initiative comprised of Indigenous-led solutions for traditional food systems, food sovereignty, and cultural food security. Dr. Joseph LeBlanc, Associate Dean, Equity and Inclusion at the Ontario Northern School of Medicine will share his expertise.
0: Welcome back to Food for the Future on 980 CFPL and 980cfpl.ca. Here's your host, Peggy O'Neill.
1: I'm Peggy O'Neill, home economist and host of Food for the Future. We're speaking with Dr. Joseph LeBlanc, Indigenous food systems expert and advocate. Joseph, can you tell us a little bit about Indigenous ways of knowing and living and why food solutions must be led by Indigenous peoples?
0: What comes to mind in this conversation are, the, you know, the stories and teachings that are connected to culture that come and, you know, a lot of that is really deeply interconnected and embedded are lessons that, you know, you might take away the first time you hear the story, they might change, you know, as you think about it, and they may change as you grow and experience life and realize, okay, well, that's what was meant by, by that. And, you know, ultimately, I think there's some really significant lessons there and strong guidance towards. Towards, you know what works and what doesn't work and where the risks are and you know often the stories will include humor they'll include fear they'll you know evoke emotions and give those lessons like we think about like the Wendigo stories that are really cautionary tales around not um, cannibalizing each other while in times of starvation and so you know th- like i said those stories evoke that cautionary element but also provide guidance you know it can be seen for what they are which is really... Experiential research, right? Participant action research, we might call it today. But for generations, the observation of these relationships and the outcomes of particular actions, our scientific method and, you know, that oral tradition involves, you know, the experiences of countless ancestors, active participation in the development of that knowledge and passing down of that information. It's the outcome of some of the longest longitudinal studies you can imagine into how to live in these places. So there is a lot of wisdom and and some clear guidance and cautions within them.
1: When I was hearing you describe that, Joseph, how we need to become seekers. And it's a very personal experience, very connected to humanity, but also very personal and what a a deep and rich way of knowing. And it's why I think that the initiative, the Northern Ontario Indigenous Food Sovereignty Collaborative is very important. And can you please tell us a bit about this?
0: So this is the outcome of about 15 years of collaborative work with Indigenous food actionists throughout the North. Actionism is a concept that is really about affecting change where you have the ability to do so and, and speaking to that cultural responsibility to act when you're capable of affecting change. And so this stands a little bit in distinction from activism, which definitely has its role. So really pleased to see the Errol Family Foundation come to the table as well as the Maple Leaf Centre for Action on Food Security and you know really embrace the idea of supporting Indigenous food sovereignty actions at the household and community level. That's the crux of the initiative is to create a granting stream for households to access, to participate in Indigenous food sovereignty activities, responding to a significant gap in the funding environment, you know, funders. And it's important to understand that any granting entity is meant to incentivize a particular behavior that was identified by that grantor. You know, we would see projects that required the creation of jobs, the creation of a marketable product, counting of the heads of volunteers. Ultimately, you know, the creation of this funding body was the collective work of a number of people. It's currently co-led by Jessica McLaughlin and Alexander Boulet with a steering committee of indigenous food actionists. And really proud to say that the framing that went out in the first one was up to a thousand dollars in a rural context and up to 2,000 in a remote context for households to apply to increase their capacity and granting stream for community planning as well as a, a community initiative. So, yeah, we're really hoping that, you know, this will revolutionize the uh, way that we're able to support uh, this type of action and to convene funders who are interested in decolonizing their own relationship and having an effective means of engagement with Indigenous communities. So like really come to the table with an open mind and, you know, a commitment to this shared learning journey.
1: Joseph, I'm just sitting here almost with my jaw open with admiration. 15 years is a really long time. So really steadfast in the purpose. And you had mentioned some very significant funders and also some truly important outcomes, the household level, the importance of family and decolonizing the table. And congratulations to the entire team and all of the people that have brought this Forward because I think it is not only an important example in Northern Ontario but across our nation and across the world. So, what a great model! And thank you for coming and talking to us about that today. What are some of the ways that food can be used to foster greater understanding and meaningful relationships beyond Indigenous communities?
0: You know, I think this is an important question to end on. And I, you know, I think a lot about the distinction between a developmental project and a life project, right? And you know, that I think is an important thing. For policymakers and others to understand, the idea is still nested within the colonial narrative that, you know, indigenous communities need to get on board with capitalism, need to get on board with, you know, resource extraction and other things and grants that are available align with that, right? The creation of a job, the creation of, you know, marketable products. Whereas life projects are about sustaining life in place. And what we're seeing is a strong interest in that realm. Really, you know, like I said at the beginning, a mosaic of local food systems across Canada. And so, you know, how can we get to a place where policymakers understand a certain level of food systems literacy? And it's really important to shift from the colonial narrative that Indigenous peoples need Western thought to thrive. Really, you know, we need to have policymakers and that imposition of thought removed from our life, and we need to shift into a framework you can trust that we know what is needed to sustain life in these places and generally it's never been extractive industries it's it's always been you know hyper localized economies and so that diversity that comes from a lifestyle like that is what has sustained life in place since time immemorial and it's those kinds of initiatives that we need support on and really start to look at a reparations model shift into a framework of you know rights holder based management and a relationship that is more respect for, you know, Indigenous sovereignty. And from that, we'll see change in rates of security and other measures.
1: How can listeners learn more, Joseph?
0: You know, shedding some of the preconceived bias and notions that have come from our colonially influenced education into really thinking critically about what you've been taught and opening up that understanding to see what was here before. I know looking at the presence of Indigenous people here for tens of thousands of years, you know, and the evidence of that is overwhelming. So I think addressing and engaging with some of these materials with an open mind and thinking critically about what you think you know about our communities and our food. And see, I like to challenge people to think about where colonialism is impacting their lives. I'm sure every Canadian can identify something in their own life that could change if we move to a a decolonial future.
1: So lots to think about and this pattern of be a seeker and an observer. There is so much more out there and certainly a lot to learn from our Indigenous communities. And thank you for that, Joseph. Do you have any final thoughts to offer our listeners about Indigenous food sovereignty or cultural food security?
0: Uh, you know, we are always looking for other funders for the initiative. We're always happy and hopeful to connect with others in other regions that want to do something similar. Whoever you are and your particular interest in this, I'm open to having those conversations as well at at adei.nawsum.ca. Yeah, I hope that this resonates with you as a listener and that there's some change that you can affect. And you know, if you don't come up with anything, then maybe it's time to listen some more and learn some more because I think everybody has something they can change.
1: Thank you very much, Joseph. So people can get a hold of you at adei at nawsum.ca and that stands for associate dean equity and inclusion at northern Ontario School of Medicine.ca. Joseph Chi a big thank you. I know that your work is tireless and you do many things to bring hope and real results, so thank you very much.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Sincere pleasure to have you. Today on Food for the Future, we've been speaking with Dr. Joseph LeBlanc, Associate Dean of Equity and Inclusion at the Northern Ontario School of Medicine an Advocate for Indigenous Food Sovereignty. Each week, we leave you with something to talk about and something to do. Something to talk about? What do you already know? And what can you learn more about Indigenous food systems? Something to do? Go to facebook.com NOIFC, which stands for Northern Ontario Indigenous Food Sovereignty Collective, to find educational videos, events, and more about Indigenous food sovereignty. Next week on the show, we continue the Waste Not series in which we discuss ways to reduce food waste in order to help ensure there's enough food for ourselves, our communities, and the entire human family. We'll be speaking with officials from the Net Zero Waste Council about their recently published report.
0: Thank you to our
1: platinum-level sponsors, Burnbrae Farms, Eggs for Life, and the Middlesex London Food Policy Council. Food for the Future with Peggy O'Neill airs every Saturday at 8.30 on 980 CFPL and 980cfpl.ca.